In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Esther chapter 9, uh, the first 19 verses. The date set by Haman for the destruction of the Jews has arrived, but on display is the bravery of Queen Esther and Mordecai as they stand up for their people against their enemies. What follows is a triumphant counterattack by the Jews. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help congregations and missionaries spread the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, hopping in on our conversation this morning and to help guide us as we dive into Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, is my guest, the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, Mission Advocate at KFUO Radio. Good morning, Pastor Gribbenaw. Always happy to have you on. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, go ahead. Good morning. Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. And and to be quite honest, I I actually didn't hop in. I I strolled. so. Well, you strolled right into. I strolled the, the, right in. That's right. To the nice studios there in uh, KFUO. Are you? Didn't you guys redo the studios there recently? We we did. We we actually revamped our our podcasting studio because podcasts are really becoming a, a a very prevalent part of of the proclamation ministry here at KFUO mm-hmm. Radio. It has a nice touch screen control board. Oh, if you're not careful, I feel like I'm going to set off some nuclear codes or something. There's so many buttons, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, we, we, and Studio A's getting ready for another upgrade. We're in the, our premier studio right now, but uh, we're, we've got the old standby technology uh, <laughs> running our is, that's right running the it show works. today. Amen. <laughs> well, I tell you what, brother. You know uh, how are things going for you and your ministry to KFUO? There any besides the what we just said? Anything else new and you know, exciting going on? Well, you know, there's a, a very nice young lady. Emily, who is our intern today, it's her first day with us, and she's sitting here in the studio uh, helping Dan Darnell as he runs the board, because I, I am not as gifted technologically as, mm-hmm. uh, as I perhaps am with my Greek and my Hebrew. So <laughs> so Emily is here shadowing today, and a wonderful little addition to our, our team here. And uh, well, it's, it's great to have interns to learning about this, this medium of, of radio and internet streaming that is helping to proclaim God's word around the world. Well, I'm telling you, I, I don't know if it's uh, according to protocol, but I'd love to hear from Emily just a little bit and see, uh, you know, if she's an intern, she going to school. What's oh, going here, on run over here, Emily. Let's, let's yeah, go ahead and, and 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 introduce yourself to the wonderful world of KFUO Radio. Hi, I'm Emily. It's so nice to meet you, and I'm so excited to be starting this chapter of my life. So, um, this is I'm sitting here with my like eyes just wide open because there's so many buttons everywhere. <laughs> But it is so awesome. This is one of the most exciting things that I've ever gotten the opportunity to do. Well, it's so nice to have you there behind the board with Dan. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you, are you going to school? Is that how that you're an intern or what, what's your situation? So I actually graduated high school early this semester. So I would be a senior in high school um, at a high school in St. Louis called Melville. But I graduated a little bit early and I'm taking this time to do early college online so that I can work more. Um, and I applied for an internship. I actually applied for a job here thinking that I wasn't even going to get a call back. Um, but I really think that it was part of God's plan for my life just because, you know, I had looked into doing ministry as a career, actually. 
And I had also, I want to go into broadcast journalism. And so when I was looking at a job finder, I typed in broadcast and this is the first job that popped up. And I was like, wow, it's Jesus and, and broadcast that's like, right. combined. So I really think that that's part of a plan, but yeah, doing online college while I work here and then come fall, I'll be going to Lindenwood for broadcast, but I would love to continue doing this throughout that time too. Well, now it's just your first day, so hold <laughs> off that love to continue. Well, you know what? Yeah, Blessings no on your uh, on your education and everything that the Lord has in store for you. And yeah, thanks for being there with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to watching this. <laughs> well, Doug, are you back? I am back, brother. And yeah. uh, hey, it's so good to uh, it's so good to have Emily here, and so good to have some time with uh, our brothers and sisters and with God's Word here. Well, let's dive into God's Word, but before we do, as always, I'd like to invite you to start off our time together in prayer. All right. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, you have knit us together in our mother's wombs. You've watched over us since, well, before our mothers and fathers even knew that we were the, the twinkle there. We ask that you would continue to preserve each and every one of your peoples that you would send forth your spirit to call to faith those who do not yet know you, just as you have preserved your people of old through, through the work of Esther and Mordecai, that we might have the Messiah delivered to us, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that he would then draw all peoples to himself and reconcile all of creation, both Jew and Gentile alike, unto you. Bless our time together in the study of your word and increase our faith, and enliven us to speak your peace, the peace we have in your Son, Christ Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that people who are tuning in today have been tuning in since we began Esther, uh, you know, just a week, a couple weeks ago. But Esther is just this amazing book of God's uh, active providence behind the scenes. We have this great uh, melodrama unfolding with pride and, and falls, and it's just been a, uh, a book full of irony and just wonderful descriptions and, and twists and suspense. So it's amazing, and it's hard to do it justice if you haven't been with us this whole time. But just in case people maybe are tuning in for the first time today, uh, would you mind just catching us up so that we can start off Chapter 9 like on the right foot? All right, so uh, the, the recap before today's episode. Uh, in, in the book of Esther, we have uh, King, oh heavens, Pastor Boo, would you pronounce his name for sure. me? Sure. <laughs> I'm getting very good at it. I know you are. Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus, the king of the Persian Empire, vast controlling empire. We have the Jewish people here. Uh, they're, they're exiled inside this, this land in a sense, sort of, you know, kind of the second-class citizen kind of feel. And 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 so King Ahasuerus, his first wife, the one that's Vashti, had, uh, had displeased him by not doing as he had commanded. And so she was dismissed. And he is, begins then uh, searching for another bride. Well, a young Jewish maiden that we know as Esther... Uh, she becomes the queen. Now, she had been a faithful young lady and had been raised by her uncle Mordecai and honored him and, and followed his direction and continued to do so with wisdom and grace, even as she was brought in as, as, uh, to the harem and then elevated to the point of queen. Well, there was a, there was a bad guy 
his name was Haman, who was very puffed up with himself. And Mordecai did not show to Haman what Haman thought to be the, the proper um, uh, homage. And Haman then made up his mind to, to destroy Mordecai. And not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews. Well, this plot is discovered, and Mordecai lets Esther know that Haman is planning to slaughter all the Jews. Haman comes to King Ahasuerus and says, hey, you know, I'll give you 10,000 of, of, our, of our coinage and just give me the permission to wipe out these people. And for some reason, uh, the king says, okay, go ahead, put my, put my name on this decree, put it with my signet ring, and we'll make it happen. Well, Esther, uh, in, well, in a bit of boldness and, and really trust in the Lord, presents herself before the king. And in those days, if you came before the king unannounced and he didn't point his golden scepter at you, well, then it was the, <clears throat> the chopping block for you. Well, he does point his golden scepter at Esther. And Esther invites the king and Haman uh, to a feast. And sort of puffed up with this great pride, Haman's like, wow, I get to go with the king and hang out with the queen? Just the three of us? I, I must be a pretty important dude. He's riding high on this, leaves the feast, and sees Mordecai. And Haman's blood boils. And he hatches this plan then to put a huge gallow, you know, seven stories tall, outside his home. And he's going to hang Mordecai on that so that everyone knows you don't mess with Haman. Uh, because it's not just you, but it's everybody you know. Well, the reversal comes that Esther reveals to the king that she is one that will be slaughtered when Haman's plan is realized, for she is a Jew. And, <laughs> and so the king is very upset. He departs. Haman falls at the feet of Esther, begging her forgiveness, begging for his life. And the king returns and believes that Haman is actually assaulting his wife. And so Haman is quickly and promptly hung upon the gallows that Haman himself had built for Mordecai. Now, I had forgotten a, a wonderful little twist in this story. This is a long recap, right? It's like a movie. Yeah, but it's beautiful. And missed my favorite part. So, yes. Yes, the, go the back. favorite part is Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai had overheard of a plot against the king's life. And he made, uh, he, he made the king aware of this. And the king had, uh, his life was spared. And realized that, well, nothing was done for Mordecai. The king was spared. Life went on. Well, in the midst of this, um, this plan that Haman had to destroy the Jews, there was a night that, that sleeplessness came upon the king. And so he thought, well, what better thing to fall asleep to than the, the annals of our people's history and the glorious things that have happened? Well, just so happens that what they read to him that night was how this man Mordecai had saved the king's life and spared him from this plot of assassination. Well, the king says, hmm, what did we do for this fellow? <laughs> and the realization is, yeah, we didn't do anything. And so the king says, well, you know what? We should do something for him. He calls in his friend Haman and says, what should we do for basically the, the greatest guy in all the Persian empire outside of me, the king? 
Haman thinks that uh, the king is is leading him on to give great honor to Haman. So Haman devises this wonderful uh, party, you know, a way for dressing him in the royal robes, putting him on the royal steed and marching him through the town. And Haman's thinking, this will be great. I'll look great in the royal robes. I'll look great on that steed. Everyone will know how great I, Haman, am. And after Haman describes the wonderful accolades, well, the king then reveals, ah, yes, we should do that for Mordecai because he saved my life. And so the one guy that Haman just hates above anybody else in the whole of the world is the one guy that gets all these accolades. But to add insult to injury, the king says, Haman, you're going to go and make sure that this happens. So Haman has to dress Mordecai with all the royal vestiges, place him upon the royal steed, march around and say, thus it will be done to anyone that finds favor in the king's eyes. And so what a great humiliation. Uh, pride does cometh before the fall, and uh, and Haman falls quite greatly, for uh, the for Haman finds himself hung upon the gallows of this man Mordecai. Well, Mordecai is uh, is is then uh, going to be elevated into a position of authority after Haman's uh, execution. Uh, Mordecai becomes the the right hand man, the, the chief advisor to the king, and quite important and and also worldly powerful in the Persian Empire. And so Mordecai, the, the Jew who had initiated this displeasure for all the Jews by being a pious and, and decent guy, <laughs> well, then he becomes the man in charge of all things in, in the kingdom, uh, second only to the king. And, uh, and so that sort of catches us up. Now, the problem is that there was the decree and the edict to wipe out and destroy all the Jews. And in the Persian Empire, if a decree and an edict was set forth with the king's signature, it could never be revoked. So the order stood, even though it was revealed to be a, a wicked plan by the enemy of, of the king and the enemy of the Jewish people, Haman. So what is to be done? Well, if you can issue one edict, you can issue another. And so another edict is sent forth that on the day appointed for the destruction of the Jews in the Persian Empire, well, on that day, the Jews have the king's uh, blessing and authority uh, to, to fight back. And in fact, they're actually given then the spoils, you know, the, the treasures and the possessions of those who, with whom they will engage in battle. The ones who seek to destroy the Jews, they have the king's authority then to fight back. And, and if they're victorious, they get to keep the spoils. And so that sort of catches us up then to, uh, to where we are. Two competing edicts within one nation, uh, almost in a, in a way a sort of civil war, uh, because as we will discover, there is great animosity amongst some of the peoples in the Persian Empire against the Jews, uh, but there is also um, a great fear of the Jews, mostly a fear of Mordecai, which is really the misplaced fear of of the one whose hand has guided and preserved these things, really from a, a deus absconditus, the hidden God manner of preserving his people. And, uh, and that fear then will, will lead those within the kingdom to, to fall on two sides, <laughs> those who are seeking to slaughter the Jews and those who will seek to defend them and fight alongside. 
I well, think well, that brings us up. That's all the time we have for today. Thank <laughs> okay, you for yes. joining us. Uh, no, sorry. I'll bring in sound effects next time so we can have that. <laughs> no, I mean, as you retell the story, though, it just reminds me, folks, if you have not like uh, been following along or have read Esther at all, it really is this great book. And it, it's famous for like never having mentioned God. But as we've said several times over these episodes, it doesn't mention God. It shows God. God is at work behind the scenes. These things aren't serendipitous. They're not coincidence. It's God working in ways that, you know, isn't him, you know, calling down from the heavens. It isn't pillars of cloud and fire. It isn't the threshold shaking. This is God as we often experience him behind the scenes and, and working for the good of his people. And you're right. You talk about a civil war. You know, it just talk about politics. You know, he literally makes a decree. Actually, he doesn't make it. Haman makes it. He passes off his authority to Haman. I think he's just too busy, doesn't care. Sure, you want to kill all these people, go ahead. And he makes this decree, Haman does. And then when it comes time to save them, he really does the same thing, right? King Ahasuerus, or we could say Xerxes, that's his Greek name, he, he passes off the ring to now Mordecai and says, okay, yeah, take care of it, whatever you want to do. But he can't just say, hey, listen, don't do that first thing I said. So now essentially the king is telling the Jews that they can resist the people who the king told to kill them. And it just becomes a, a really a tragic but cosmic comedy of how this worldly authority is just being misused and, and not and, and just how frivolous it can be. Uh, now, there's some practical things, too. We talked about it yesterday. I mean, perhaps the way the communication worked then, if you send out a decree, you really there's no means by which you can retract it. It's like an email. Once it's sent, it's sent, and it's hard to pull that back. So I guess there's something there to it, but still, it just seems so ridiculous that now these people have to have permission to defend themselves. But that is what we're at today. The time has come for Haman's edict to, to take place, and of course, Mordecai also wrote the edict in such a way that this will be the day that the Jews should defend themselves, and that's where we find ourselves in our text. So we're going to read from the ESV, chapter 9, and I think we're just going to do the first 10 verses, basically half of our selection for today. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmash Parmashata and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. 
Okay, that's our first section. And what's fascinating to me is, and we discussed this again yesterday, the decree that Mordecai sent out was a mirror. It was a parallel to the decree that Haman had sent out. But there were some, I think by modern standards, some pretty, I don't know, let's just say uh, um, problematic things. For instance, the the decree said that they should uh, kill, destroy, annihilate, but then it included women and children, and then it included having this plunder. And so the question I think on the mind of most people is, are these Jews, in this case, are they defending themselves from attack, or are they just sort of getting vengeance along those people who just don't who, – who hate them, who don't like them? And I think that's something we have to struggle with as we read this because, yes, it's a different time, but it's still so difficult because these Jews obviously represent the people of God. So I think that's hard for us to reconcile. I'm not sure if you've thought about it that way. Well, you know, I, we still see – this kind of vengeance in in the world today, and in this case, I'm I, I suppose maybe the better better than vengeance is revenge. You know, blood wars uh, because you you killed my father, uh, and and so now I will kill you. And and honestly, I, I think of you know the Princess Bride. Hello, my name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right. So there's this. There's this revenge, this vengeance upon these things. And, and even today we see that when, when people's loved ones are, are killed, then there becomes this, this you know, blood feud. We will get even uh, with that family, with those people, you know, the half-filled and the McCoys. And so there is a, an ancient, <laughs> very pragmatic reality of of killing the sons, that there may not be a, a vengeance that goes forth um, to sort of put an end to this this feud um, by a, the very drastic step of basically eradicating the household. We, we see that with the sons of Haman very explicitly, uh, that named, each, each one named. Uh, but in the decree itself from, from chapter 8, uh, to include you know, women and children, entire families, um, in in this sort of ugly, sin-filled world's pragmatic way of of ending this 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 hatred and this battle and letting it be done, you know, once and for all would be the I think the thought, but that ignores the fact that we're in a sinful reality that that our war with one another. Uh, is is a result of of the old Adam, and uh, and and it rears its ugly head each and every day. That makes a lot of sense. You brought up wars today, and I, and I guess I'm probably thinking a little bit more of like World War One, World War Two, some of the earlier wars, um, even Vietnam conflict and these other things, where you have people who are fighting for their nation, and they're fighting other people who are fighting for their nation, but typically. The people that are fighting each other haven't really done anything directly to one another, and yet we still see a lot of these battles as as just, not all of them, but some of them. And so it, it's about eradicating the possibility of future uh, war or future persecution. And in this case, it, it's almost even a little bit more personal because these are people who would have been well known that they're ready to <laughs> exercise that first edict. Uh, they probably were 
if they did have a hatred for these people, they might have seen them as foreigners and and people that didn't belong there. Then it might be well known that that yeah they were they were all preparing, and so I just think it's 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 important for us to understand that there these are different times, but at the same time, and you also brought this up, the it's not an overreaction; it's an equal reaction to the first edict. So it's not like the use of force is greater than that which was threatened against them. They are essentially um, exercising the edict in such a way to hopefully drive other people to not rise up against them, right? It's to, it's really to cancel out that first one. Um, yeah, there is the, no uh, indication that they were looking to harm their Persian neighbors. Yeah, the actual edict's language is to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. That's in uh, chapter 8, verse 11. And that last part I included just because it, it becomes sort of important as we wander through chapter 9. But yeah, it is limited to those who who are the armed force that attacks the Jews, be they armed women, armed children. These are the forces that, so the reaction or the defense of the Jewish people is limited to these these groups that are that are armed and attacking them. Uh, so it's not a not a wholesale uh, sort right. of vengeful. Uh, it would just get everybody, um, and you know whoever is left standing is the victor. It's, it's limited to those who, in a sense, are are choosing to engage in combat with the Jews. Well, and the king wouldn't have wanted that either. You know, that, that would be he, very unwise for any right. king. <laughs> but another interesting aspect that we really see from this is that Mordecai's. Uh, you know, it's not just that he's carrying around the title of prime minister, kind of took Haman's place, but now the fear of Mordecai has gotten out. And I suppose the way you interpret that fear is whether you are on Mordecai's side or not. So if the fear of Mordecai for those who supported him was one of awe and reverence and, and they appreciated his authority and power, and of course the fear of those who perhaps might be eager to destroy his people, well, that's just plain old fear because of his power and authority. So in the months that have passed since Mordecai was you know, uh, risen or, or he was elevated rather to this position, yeah, yeah, P the word got out that Mordecai has the right, the right hand. He's the right hand. He's got the ear of the king and he has the authority and he's exercising that authority. Yeah, I was looking in the footnotes of, of the, the Lutheran Study Bible in the ESV version and it has been nine months since Mordecai has issued this this countermanding edict. Uh, so it's been nine months, it, and in truth, you know, you read this, and and of course, it's it's written with a different calendar than the one we have. <laughs> so it's sometimes a little hard to decipher when things are taking place. Uh, but I appreciate the footnote says it's been nine months, and it makes sense in the in the scope of the size of the Persian Empire. And we don't have, you know, telephones and, and, and email and stuff like that. You, you have to send and produce physical copies and then send them out and make sure that they are announced and read and posted uh, throughout this whole empire. So it, it takes a little while for that first edict to get out there. It's taken a little while for this countermanding edict to come out. And so now we find ourselves nine months later at the day when, when these two edicts are to go into effect. Well, there is also not only is there the reversal of Mordecai um, receiving the authority that Haman had, not only is there the reversal now 
of the Jews being victorious of those who were seeking to destroy them, but we also see a comeuppance for the ten sons of, of Haman. But that's something we're going to have to talk about when we come back from our break. So folks, don't go anywhere. When we return from these messages, uh, Pastor Gribbon and I will keep on going with Esther chapter 9. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, Mission Advocate at KFUO. Folks, if you have any questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hello, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook or send me a message there. You know, I just want to thank you for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. Remember, they can listen here on demand at kfuo.org or even through the KFUO app. We can also be heard on your favorite podcasting platform. Well, Pastor Gribbenau, before the break, we were just going through the fact that there was a equal response to that which was threatened against them because of Haman's previous edict. But one thing that we had just gotten to at the end of the section we read is that, well, you know, here we have Haman planning to destroy all the Jewish people, including women and children, and now his sons are the target. And we don't get their ages. Perhaps they were adult sons who would be engaged in battle, and that's probably the way we'll lean. But still, they actually get they get named. Uh, in Susa the Citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Ashpatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmshata, Erasai, Aradai, and Vizatha. Uh, it says the ten sons of Haman. Son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Um, so we have this section, and I just it's fascinating because not only is Haman destroyed, but all of his children, the same children that he previously was boasting about before his wife and friends, before he went to the dinner prepared by Queen Esther, when he still thought he was in the clear. Um, it seems excessive by today's standards, I suppose, but it could also be a fulfillment of what God had already ordered because of this deterogatory term Agagite, which was um, associating Haman here with the Amalekites. I'm not sure what your take on it is, but what do you think? You know, you, you, you bring up something that had escaped my thinking, and uh, this is why I love, you know, two brothers together delving into the scriptures. Um, 
Would you expand on that one, one a little bit more for my sake and, and for the listeners? <laughs> <laughs> Which you, part? The, uh, the agagite Yeah, the part? agagite, yeah. So, you know, in my studies, what I've found is that there's a little bit of division among scholars because they call him the agagite. So, uh, you know, and it says it every time they mention him in the same way that every time it seems to mention Mordecai, it, it kind of call or in official capacity, it like calls Mordecai him Mordecai the Jew. the Jew. Yeah. And so they call him uh, Haman the Agagite, or in this case, just the enemy of the Jews. And so some scholars believe that he was not an Agagite, which is a term affiliated with the Amalekites, because we have in Exodus 17, uh, actually verse 14, Yahweh says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So God has said that he's going to destroy all the Amalekites because of their uh, enmity with his people, the Jews. So the question is, is Haman really a, a descendant of the Amalekites? Is he really an Agagite? Or because he's so has so much hatred towards the Jews, are they just calling him that? Sort of an honorary title, right? <laughs> or a dishonorary yeah. title. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, now, I, I will say I lean towards the fact that he might not be an official Amalekite or Agagite because he doesn't really take umbrage with the Jews. He hates Mordecai, and he doesn't even say anything about the Jews until he's told that he is a Jew. And then he says, okay, well, let's let's punish all his people too. But regardless, that's what you got. You got this idea that his sons are being destroyed. And so on the one hand, it seems excessive, but if he really were a descendant of the Amalekites, it's kind of fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, there, and I don't there think would it's be clear. the Lord enacting his promise. Um, right, right. It's just interesting to think about. That is. And, uh, and I've, I've not really dug into, uh, I, and I don't know that particularly Scripture gives us a clear lineage of his uh, family to, to come down and weigh one way or the other. Um, I, I suppose I, I perhaps lean a little bit in in the direction of, of a, a sort of pragmatic understanding. You know, Haman, you know, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And the manner in which Haman conducted himself is probably how his sons conducted themselves. So on the one hand, we could say that the, the chances are very likely they were engaging in battle against the Jews. You know, we've waited nine months. Our dad's dead. We are going to get revenge. And we're actively engaged in this battle. On the other hand, it could be the ugly pragmatism of, of the world that, you know, here are these, these sons of this viper and, uh, and, and they need to be his house. The whole house of Haman needs to be uh, removed and taken uh, lest this cancer continue to grow. Um, very true. It would be no... I don't think they'd be very hard to say that these guys, these sons, especially 10 of them, uh, wouldn't want to get revenge for their father or avenge his death or to rise up the population against the king or against Mordecai. So as you said, there's a very pragmatic reason to cut this off. I mean, this is why, to connect it to our own salvation history, this is why the um, the disciples, the apostles too, this is why they were so afraid at the crucifixion of Jesus, because it would have been very standard operating procedure that if you're trying to quash a movement, you're not just going to get the main person, but you're going to try to 
destroy all those who are close followers or followers to set an example. And so, yeah, I think that leans towards pragmatism. And we will discover a little bit later that it, it's not simply that these 10 sons were killed either. But that, that's oh, coming yes. up next, right? Yeah. Yes, but before we get there, we got to mention one more thing, and that's the but, right? The enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So pragmatism's out the window, right? They had all these rights to basically plunder these people, but they don't. And that certainly would have been the absolutely normal and expected response in, a, in an armed battle like this in the ancient world. You know, once you've wiped them out, you take their stuff. And, and everybody would have done that. That's that's how the world works. And so the fact that, that the, the, the Jews are showing restraint, even though the edict permits them to do so, uh, it, it, it really comes down to this is not an act of vengeance. This is, this is a restrained response of, of defense, of preserving their people, and not for, for, for worldly gain. You know, how often have we uh, on occasion seen the Lord with his people saying, go forth and attack this place, but do not put your hands on any of the, the plunder? And the times when they disregard this, well... The Lord is uh, disciplining, if you will, <laughs> with that, because the battle is not about the worldly possessions. Here, really, the, the, the purpose, the directive of this is the preservation of the people whom God has, has taken outside of, of the world to make a people for his own possession, a, a precious people for the purpose that through them all the nations of the world will be blessed. That the Messiah will come who will put an end to all of this strife, this division, this enmity between man and, and, and his fellow man, between man and creation, and between man and God. And that is, the, that is the Lord's hand here working to preserve his people that his promise, that first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, chapter 15, is going to be realized. Uh, with the, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-Man Christ Jesus, born of his people. Let's read just the rest of our selection, which is through verse 19, to add to the conversation. Here we go. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews, who were in Susa, gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews, who were in the king's provinces, also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day, uh, of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that day of feasting of, and gladness. 
But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that day of feasting and gladness. And therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. All right, there we go. So we got a little insight from the author who's talking about, you know, he's connecting the current practices to what happened back then. But, you know, going back then, we see a couple things going on. You know, they, they, as you said, they hang those sons of Haman on the gallows. I, I don't know if, is it clear? Are they hanging them on the gallows, the 75, 80 foot gallows they put outside of Haman's house? Or, or am I reading too much into that? You know, the, the, the text is not clear as to which gallows this is. Um, however, given the, the situation of a kingdom in that day and age, uh, having more than one gallows is probably not unusual. <laughs> and, so, and, and there is also the, the, although I have to say, I may, might be contradicting myself here, a seven-story high gallows would accommodate an awful lot of, of, of dead, dead bodies. Uh, so uh, there may also be just sort of the, the practical thing of, well, why, why use another gallows? Just use this one over here. Um, but no, Scripture doesn't tell us one way or the other. But the point is that, that uh, these sons of Haman suffered the same fate as Haman. And, and I think that we finally see a reason why. And it's partly because where are we discussing mostly is the things that are happening in Susa, the citadel, which is to say the capital. This is where the king and queen reside, along with you know, probably a very many important and influential and powerful people people in the kingdom of Persia, uh, the seat of power. And throughout the rest of the Persian Empire, this day of defense, this day of slaughter that, that are now competing with each other, it's, it's pretty much decided in one day. But not so in the seat of power, in the, the city of Susa, the citadel where Haman and his family and his influence had been so well seated. Here there remain so many enemies against the Jews that a second day of defense is, is necessary. And it is before that second day that the bodies of the ten sons of Haman are set forth on display, are put on these gallows. Um, and I think it's, it's a testament to how much hatred had been engendered against the Jews in this city where Haman had such tremendous influence. You know, you uh, bring it to my attention. I didn't think about it this way, but that is another reason why these 10 men were probably put upon these gallows or these big spikes, however you interpret it, because if there is a special loyalty and resistance in the citadel because of Haman's influence, that would pretty much put an end to it. I mean, or at least be a very big sign that, you know, if you who are just friends or loyal to Haman, even his sons didn't escape punishment. And I, I think people would look at that and go, oh, well, maybe. And this is why they did it in the first place, right? But they would look at it and they'd go, oh, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll not, you know, maybe I'll not resist the uh, Mordecai edict. I mean, this is, this is the reason that, that Haman wanted to string Mordecai up on the gallows was, you know, anybody who disrespects me, that's what's going to happen to you. It, it's a very gruesome reality, but it's a, 
Uh, it, it's a very common practice in the ancient world. You know, this is well, the punishment, and, and look and behold. <laughs> and to be honest, while we're certainly less uh, visceral about it, um, it still remains the primary motivator for so-called correction institutions today. We talk about, well, reforming and reha rehabilitating and correcting behavior through our penal system. But the reality is it also serves as a giant deterrent. This is why you hear about people who are arrested and their lengthy sentences or even their capital punishments. Um, it, it's not it's to it's to also tell other people this is what will happen to you if you disobey the government or disobey our laws. So while perhaps the tactics are different, you know, the, the what happened what's happening here is not entirely different than what happens today. And it's really no different than what happens within each of us all the time. I, I often say that I, I'm a better pastor because I, I'm a dad. <laughs> and, and I have this mirror held up to me of of what is going on within me all the time, uh, just without the, the, the pious veneer of an adult restraint, right? <laughs> you have a three-year-old, yes. you have a six-year-old. And, you know, I want to say that the reason that they don't do the things they don't want to do is because of their love for mom and dad. And that's, I'm sure that's a part of it. <laughs> But the larger motivator is they don't do the things they're not supposed to do because they know they're going to get in trouble. <laughs> and, and the old Adam says, you know what? The temporary fun of being the naughty guy it does not outweigh the punishment that I'm going to get. <laughs> and, and so yeah. we ourselves, we still make those balance calculations, even as adults in our heads. You know, oh, I could, I could do that. Well, no one's really, but, you know, maybe I shouldn't. There is the fear of punishment that is a, a very strong motivator for the old Adam. Uh, and then for the Christian, you know, the, the love of God is, is the other strong motivator uh, mm -hmm. to, to follow yeah. and obey his commandments. And, and you know, simul justus et peccator, uh, we're always struggling in that balance. And, uh, and, and so it will be uh, until the second coming of our Lord. I'm glad you brought up that distinction, too, because that is true. The fear of punishment really is what's effective against our old selves. It's effective against those who've not been regenerated or redeemed. I still exist, right? Don't you know they don't carry the sword for nothing? So you know, you know, mind your p's and q's. Uh, but one thing I find that's interesting in this text, right? I kind of skipped right to the ten sons, but it is also, um, or was that before? No, yeah, it was before that. Um, right after they get hung, we see here that the king. We we kind of flash back to the to the castle or whatever, and we see the queen Esther there. And I think it's weird <laughs> the way that the it's either written or the way the king says it here, because he says to queen, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. And then it seems to imply that he's like bothered by it. Like, well, what in the world then have they done everywhere else? But then it's immediately followed by, well, whatever you want to do, I'll do it again. I, 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 I don't know how to interpret that, to be honest, or his motivation for saying that. We have a whole cascade of reversals that are that are happening here. And, and I, I would say that we see another sort of re reversal here as well. You know, th this is the same king who wanted his wife to come and see him at his party, and she didn't, so he dismissed her. That was Vashti, you know, so the first the first wife, right? First queen. And and so you know here now we have the king who is in a reversal saying what is it that you wish my queen you know even in the midst of all this you know, in for a penny in for a pound 
<laughs> All right, my queen, what is it that you wish? There, there may also be, though the text doesn't tell this, a, a sort of um, kind of lamenting. You know, I didn't really think things through so much. I let Haman do whatever he wanted. And maybe if I'd been thinking, you know, I, I put my queen in danger and I do love you. So there could also be this sort of motivation of like, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm trying to make amends. We're just going to keep doing whatever it is you want to do uh, until this problem is put to rest. I, I, could, I could see myself as a, as a repentant husband <laughs> sort of saying, oh, yeah, OK, <laughs> you know. Let's let whatever you want. Let's let we just make the make the wife happy. <laughs> Get things back to normal. Um, the king has discovered happy wife, happy life. <laughs> that's right. You know? But so you bring up a perspective I did not consider. So I was thinking more of him thinking like, oh my goodness, look at all the people that are being killed because of this. It seems that you're saying, or at least this is what you made me think, that he's saying, I didn't realize that this many people would have been ready to attack the Jews. Like, like the numbers aren't so much that he's sorry to lose his people, which maybe he is, but the numbers really are demonstrating just how wicked Haman's first edict was. Is that kind of what you're saying? Because that, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I sort of lean in that direction that he's finally going, wow, there was, there was this tremendous tension in my kingdom. There was, things were ready to explode. Look at how many people... We're ready to just wholesale slaughter uh, other subjects of the king. Um, so I, I, I think it is a bit of a, an eye-opener for the king to, to go, wow, even here in my own city where I am the king, uh, where my word reigns supreme and everyone gets to see me and, they, and they're right next to my seat of power, 500 right here. Um, and and how many others in the rest of my kingdom? How bad is this problem? We know from history that this is all happening around February or March 473 B.C. And so we know that at the same time, which actually began this whole book, uh, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, however you want to say it, um, he was preparing a pretty huge events offensive against uh, Greeks. And he, was, he would then go on to a major battle, uh, which is kind of how we began. There was a 180-day, uh, let's say, working party where all of his satraps and people had come and leaders, and he was basically getting them on his side for this major military offensive. So we've seen through here, though, that he's also a king that, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, right? We'll, we'll, we'll follow the Eighth Commandment here. Maybe he's not so, is that he's scatterbrained or uninterested in what's going on in his kingdom, but he's very busy. So that's why he just hands off the signet ring to uh, Haman. This is why he then even hands off the signet ring to Mordecai. I mean, part of this is their position, I'm sure. But a lot of it is he's just kind of disconnected with what's going on in his kingdom. And this was probably an eye-opener. He's so focused on getting more territory and attacking people. As you said, he doesn't realize he's got a powder keg in his backyard. Amen. Amen. So then this leads to the 75,000 killed who hated them, et cetera, et cetera. But then we get a t little bit of a hint as we come to the bottom of the show. We get a little bit of a, a hint here of this Feast of Purim, which will be established. So we're told here that they rest on um, the 14th a day in some places and the 15th day in others. But this is a, ends up being a day of feasting and gladness. One where it's a, it's a holiday and they're sending gifts of food to one another. Um, what an interesting way to celebrate this victory. 
Well, you know, as opposed to a, a feast instituted by the command of the Lord, you'll note that there is not a sacrifice to be made. Um, but this is this is the people's gathering in in community with one another. Their community has been preserved by the hand of the Lord, working through means, working behind the scenes, and and so it, it's. It's really, it's a, it's a feast of Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's sort of the first Thanksgiving <laughs> that you share the, this food and you, and you strengthen this community uh, and this bond with your, with your brothers and sisters that, uh, that we have been preserved and we rejoice in, in that preservation. We had yesterday the Reverend Kevin Parviz, who is a pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom there in Missouri. And, you know, he talked about, because this is his style and the people he ministers to, they actually celebrate the Jewish festival of Purim uh, in much the way that they did both here in the text and also the way some uh, more modern Jews celebrate it. But they retell this story and they wear costumes and hats and the and the kids uh, actually act out the story. And I didn't quite get it. I think he said there was something about the there's a, a scene where they all stomp on Haman. I have no idea. But the point is... This festival is something they celebrate because, again, the people he ministers to are typically Jews. So they're, you know, they're, it's LCMS, but they're Jews, and they, they connect with these stories. And I, and I asked him, I said, you know, why doesn't this show up in the Western calendar? And I asked other people that, too. And, and basically it's because it's not been, you know, it's not a thus saith the Lord. It's not been instituted by the Lord. But it's certainly not a bad festival, one where, um, you know, people are showing hospitality to one another, they're taking— you know, there certainly are worse ways that people have celebrated victories in battle. And in this case, instead of taking the plunder and living high on the hog, they demonstrate that this was a, a war, so to speak, of defense, one of divine um, protection, and one where they've now come together in, uh, in solidarity with one another. It's a, it's a nice way to celebrate it, I think. Yeah, amen. And, and yet they didn't take plunder, not once. Uh, and not even on the second day in in the city of Susa, uh, plunder was a, a hollow prize. Uh, the greatest prize here was well, was that they would continue to live and to live as God's people, right? Not giving up that uh, that, that wonderful being called out. Now the the thing that uh, also I why is this festival named Purim? Did you pick it up when you were reading in Esther? I, maybe I have, but I'd forgotten. Well, that's right. Oh. <laughs> if we go back to uh, chapter three. Oh, yes, yes. And, yes. and how is it that uh, that Haman was deciding when he was going to wipe out all these Jews? He was casting lots. That's right. And he was using a thing called a, a pur, a P-U-R. And in the Hebrew language, if you pluralize something, you put that at the end, and it becomes im. So pur-im, you know, the, the lots, the casting of the lot stones, the stones used for that. So it's named for the really the way in which Haman had, had devised their destruction. And to remember that, you know, he had cast lots, but the Lord reversed those fortunes uh, to preserve his people. So it's, it was named after the, the pur or the pur-im, the plural of that word. Well, folks, you're going to learn a lot more about that tomorrow because we're going to finish up this whole book with the chapter, the end of chapter 9 and the three verses that make up chapter 10. We're going to learn about the Feast of Purim being inaugurated, so I hope you join us for that. But right now, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, pastor and mission advocate at KFUO. Pastor, thanks so much. I always love it when you're on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's always good to be with you, brothers and sisters. 
Tomorrow, as I said, we come to the end of the book of Esther, and we'll find Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai victorious in their efforts to save the Jews from the evil plot of Haman. And we'll learn all about Purim and, and, and Purim and how, uh, how you know, Mordecai's reputation gets on. Um, but then Friday, be sure to tune in for a brand new topic. We're going to start into the pastoral epistles. We'll begin with Paul's first and second letters to Timothy, followed by his letter to Titus. Lots of good stuff in store for you. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong work.